Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Why Would You Tell Me That? With me, Dave Moore, him, Neil Delamere, uh, and you, the audience. We are so glad to have you. Uh, wherever you are listening to this, would you do us a favor? Would you do two things? One, would you hit either subscribe or follow, whatever the language is on the player you're listening to, because then it means that you're always kept up to date with the latest happenings And Why Would You Tell Me That? And also, if you get a sec, throw us a review. A five-star review would be nice. But the reason for that isn't just because we want to massage our egos. It is because uh, the more reviews you get, the higher you go up in kind of the visibility to people who maybe don't know anything about the podcast, maybe from different countries or even from the same country. They just go, who are these guys? I just found them on the front page of the Apple Podcasts app or the Google Podcasts or Spotify or whatever it is. But any review, we'd really appreciate it. Uh, you can follow us both. I'm at Dave Today FM on Instagram. Neil is at Neil Delamer Comedy. And the show itself is at Why Would You Tell Me That? And I'll stop talking now because here's Neil Delamer. And we're also proudly part of the Acast Creator Network. So if you haven't heard of the show before, one person introduces uh, an amazing person in the second half who's an expert in their field. And we talk about kind of facts in that general area for part one. So, Dave, in part two, we're going to be joined by journalist, author and broadcaster Richard Fitzpatrick. Now, he's based in Barcelona. He's written a great book on El Clasico and he's made a documentary, which is what we're going to talk about, Oh, called... The year General Franco stole the Eurovision. Ah, stop. I immediately assumed when we were going for he lives in Barcelona, he's written a book about a classico, this was going to be some amazing Barcelona Real Madrid fact or something. But you're contesting that Franco stole the Eurovision. General Franco, amongst his litany of other, what can only be described as horrific acts, <laughs> possibly stole the Eurovision. I am as intrigued as I've been in any opening gambit from you, I have to say, because I'm a massive Eurovision fan. Uh, so the fact that somebody could besmirch the integrity of one of the world's finest contests is immediately intriguing. Yeah. And as for our non-Irish listeners, we're just saying seven times, isn't it? Seven mm. times. Do we need to explain Eurovision to anyone who isn't European? Maybe we do. Um, it's just a big Eurovision song competition and uh, it includes Australia um, because it's actually decided as far as I know by the Broadcasting Corporation so Australia's in it and uh, Israel's in it and yeah it's just a big song competition I think most people know what it is True it is one of the most watched things but I guarantee you there are swayed the people listening to this going you're a what? Yeah it's like the Rose of Tralee with lyrics Is that Oh better? nice you've really, you've really picked a really international competition there I think that that's internationalised I think that's globalised <laughs> the whole idea It's like the community games in Mosny but with plinky 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 <laughs> and dung 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 in the background <laughs> Okay perfect perfect Can you see why I was sacked as the ambassador? Can you see? <laughs> Uh, right, because we're uh, talking about a dictator in, in yeah. part two, General Franco, the Spanish dictator, in case people don't know that, uh, I thought we'd talk about uh, dictator-adjacent facts in part love two. Love it, love it. Okay, so my theory is they should all release podcasts, dictators. Dictators should release podcasts. Y- yes, yes. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you why, because if you want to inculcate somebody, if you want to kind of brainwash them, if you want oh. to get them into how you think you get them to listen on headphones. What? Because listening on headphones, a voice coming from inside your head, as it were, is twice as persuasive as one coming from a speaker. You mean to tell me that we've had a podcast now for four seasons. Kill them all, kill them all. Uh, yeah, and we haven't <laughs> abused this power that we're literally in people's earphones. And I've had a radio show for 20 years. 
And I could have been okay. We didn't listen on on headphones for a long time, but now now people do. So now we have we have more power than we assumed. Yeah, and they have actually measured this send stuff and gifts to Neil and Dave. They have measured this. Uh, this was done in um, UC San Diego's Ready School, UCLA, and uh, UC Berkeley, right? I'm, I'm a size U- I'm a size UK ten in shoes. If anybody wants to send me sneakers, <laughs> send Dave sneakers. <laughs> send Neil as bigger cars. Uh, don't mind sneakers. <laughs> <laughs> good. So the idea for this study was sparked one day when UCLA Anderson School of Management assistant professor uh, Alicia Lieberman, she turned on this podcast. She knows the, uh, This American Life, right? Very yeah. popular podcast. No, well, yeah. But she turned it on in her car and she kind of went, I read Glass's voice isn't doing the same thing to me it normally does. I'm not responding in the way I thought. I normally would. And then she went, oh, maybe it's the headphones thing. So they basically did, did experiments, five different studies, 4,000 participants, this was amazing, I thought. In one experiment, subjects used either headphones or speakers to listen to a public service announcement about the dangers of distracted driving. And headphone listeners later reported being more concerned about the threat posed by distracted driving than participants who heard the messages via speakers. Wow. Yeah, because those ads are really affecting. They I don't are, know if you yeah. do you remember that ad? There used to be an ad, uh, and the, the girl was in court. It was a road safety ad. The girl was in court, and she was testifying against the guy who hit her with the car, and it was, it was yeah. uh, she was injured. If you saw that ad on UTV and Ulster Television in Northern Ireland, the car in the ad had a yellow reg, a Northern Ireland plate. Right. And if you saw that ad in the Republic on RTE, the car had a white Republic of Ireland plate and I always thought what were the chances of a fella hitting the same girl on the same road in the same car Dave I would have thought that both of them would have learned a lesson from the first time I think that was the point of the ad yeah you've you've obviously not listened to that on headphones because you've missed the point of that entirely (laughs) I, I may possibly have missed that yeah so hang on I really can't believe that that so people are genuinely more convinced of something because yeah. they're hearing it in headphones. I suppose it is such an intimate thing because going from the world of radio where by and large, and obviously times are changing, but up until let's say three or five years ago, most listening was done on radios. Uh, radio was listened to on radios. <laughs> yes. It's fact of the day. Um, but uh, that's a collective thing as in everyone can hear it within the vicinity of the radio. But as soon as you put headphones in, whether it's radio or music or podcast or audiobook, whatever you're listening to, you are immediately on a one-to-one. Or in yeah. this case, a two-to-one because Neil's here and I'm here, whatever. But it is so much more intimate. So I can understand the power of it. But I'm just, I'm amazed that someone has actually studied it and found it to be true. And and I said twice as persuasive at the start. I think that figure comes from one experiment they did where this is really, I just think it's interesting that they even came up with this idea. They listened to a speech clip from a CEO whose company provides visual information for the blind, right? After listening to the speech, the participants were asked, would they write a letter in support of the CEO winning an award for her work? And people who would listen to the podcast via headphones were twice as likely to agree to write a nomination, 30%, as those who'd listened via speakers, 40%. And that was the only difference. The only difference is headphones versus speakers. If you're listening to this on a smart speaker, turn it off immediately and put it in headphones. We need to be more persuasive. Do you know sometimes you have one uh, headphone in because you're doing something else and you want to be here? I mean, I wonder if that 50% is... <laughs> your, your right ear is really into whatever Neil is selling, but your left ear couldn't care less. Could, could you only ever convince Van Gogh of maybe 50% of the stuff that you were telling them? <laughs> Luckily, he never had to deal with headphones, poor fella. Yeah. Um, okay. So I say I think dictators should release podcasts. That is my first point. Brilliant. My second point is if there was ever going to be a dictator who was going to release one, it, it is my favorite dictator. Now, this guy comes up if you can have a favorite dictator. I was just about to ask, are you allowed to have a favorite one? Okay, go on. Well, it's like picking a favorite blood clot. It's not good, <laughs> no matter what you pick. This guy used to come up on comedy shows all the time because of his shenanigans, right? right. He was in Turkmenistan uh, about 15 years. Uh, Sapper Murad Niazov died in 2006. Yeah, he named himself Turkmen Bashi or great leader of all Turkmen, right. which is what you want. I mean, you want ridiculous statues and you want a ridiculous title, right? Yes, definitely. Okay, he went further. He changed the name for the month of April and the word for bread to his mother's name. Ah, stop it. Yeah. His mam's name. 
Like Bridey or what? Turkmenistani <laughs> yeah. version of Bridey. I love a toasted sandwich, like just ham and cheese and two slices of Mrs. Varadkar. <laughs> is this sourdough, Mrs. Hahi, or whole grain, Mrs. Hahi? <laughs> and, and the word for April as well. So, like, when will we meet? The 15th of your ma. Yeah. <laughs> two slices <laughs> of your ma and a slice of ham. Is <laughs> Imagine that in the deli, right? You want deli, go, hey, can I get a sandwich, please? Brown, white, or your ma? I'd like um, I'd like a Yarma sandwich. I mean, that's perfectly reasonable as a thing to say. Oh my Gurban god! Gurban Sultan was his mother's name, and that's what uh, bread and maple were changed to. Bread and I mean, of all of the things, like just two bizarre things to change the name of your mother it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and he changed the city and the month of January, and both of them became Turkmenbashi. So him, him. So January is now called Turkmenbashi. Now, so again, if you were the dictator, it would be. Children, everyone recite the months of the year. Neil, Delamere, February, March. <laughs> like, that's what it would have been. Did he go me, February, March? Oh, he, I don't he know. Would have, he would have had to, yeah. My favourite thing he did was uh, he wrote this. You, you want a tract, don't you? You want a Mein Kampf. You want something where your genius stroke insane ramblings <laughs> are written down, right? Yeah. He wrote this book called... The Runama, the Book of the Soul, a spiritual and philosophical tome. And he published it in 2004 and it had like history, philosophy, guidance, teachings. But this thing could come up. You had to learn it and it could come up like in your driving test. Ah, stop. Or in job interviews, the incorporated material from the world. You have to book. quote from the book. Yeah. <laughs> like as in know it off by heart. Well, you'd have to know knowledge of it. So, like, you're nervous enough doing your driving test anyway. So it's like, I'm going to hit the dashboard. And uh, when I hit the dashboard, I want you to perform an emergency stop and just quote the first verse of the 1913 <laughs> lockout. By okay, you've successfully reversed around the corner. And now please quote seven lines from Homer's Iliad. Thank you. Like, <laughs> what the hell? Yeah. Now you screeched, the brakes screeched, but they didn't screech in iambic pentameter, which is extremely <laughs> disappointing. This is insane, this guy. By the way, quick pop quiz. What's the yeah. capital of Turkmenistan? Uh, it is Ag... Uh, Ashparas? Is it? He's going to know it. I was going to have, have jokes on it. I was going to say, it's the noise you make when you sneeze. <laughs> Ask your best. Of course, Neil Delamere knows what the Turkmenistani capital is. Well, in fairness, I just read about the Turkmenistan uh, dictator. I mean, if you'd asked me a week ago, would I have known it? I would not have known it because we haven't played them in an international UEFA group, which is what (laughs) basically most of our uh, geographic knowledge is based on. So we can say, you and I can say that we think that somebody might be unstable like a dictator or or a a leader, right? And... um, we could say we thought Donald Trump was mad if we wanted, for example. And, I mean, uh, well, I mean, we wouldn't, we couldn't possibly. But if we wanted to, we'd have the freedom we to, to do that. We could say that, right? And the one thing I did enjoy when he was uh, president, I did enjoy when he went on a solo run. I did enjoy when he would say something like, "Oh, we're going to just uh, stop playing war games with South Korea." And then they'd have to interview somebody from the cabinet and they would have to pretend that they knew that he was going to say that. And they all, oh, 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 absolutely, we knew that. I mean, no, he didn't write it down anywhere and he didn't actually say it to us, but he did. Oh, we knew he was going to do it. It, <laughs> it kind of reminds me, do you know when you, your wife meets your neighbor and makes some excuse to your neighbor about why you don't have to go to some event that they're planning yeah. and then forgets to tell you yeah. and then you bump into your neighbor and you have to play Guess My Itinerary for next weekend. <laughs> I don't, don't know if you've ever had that. Oh, you can't go to little Timmy's birthday because you're going away for the weekend and you're like uh, yeah I'm, I'm going to Ashgabat yeah I'm going <laughs> to the place that I'm going to and, but no, the point is you've no idea what she said That's so true. you have to play it by you. how long is it going to take you to get down oh oh that depends on the traffic on the road <laughs> it? no no seriously how long will it take you to get down oh, oh half half an hour to four hours <laughs> like you're just <laughs> and you're going to see your dad how he's going to recover how long will the recovery time from his little procedure six months from a wisdom tooth extraction well it, it was very complicated once they got in there they had to give him a tongue transplant and now he has the tongue of a cocker spaniel and uh, my mother's delighted and now he licks his balls uh, when, he, when he goes to sleep but he was doing that before the operation so <laughs> my point anyway yeah is that you could say what you want about Donald Trump so could yeah. I have you ever heard of the Goldwater rule Goldwater? No, I have not heard of the Goldwater Rule. 
If you're an American psychiatrist, a uh, part of the American Psychiatric Association, okay. you cannot, how should I put this? You cannot give an opinion on Donald Trump, for example. On a political leader? No, on somebody that you haven't examined. So what happened was, Goldwater is familiar because Barry Goldwater ran for the U.S president's position he was in the american presidential election in 1964 right okay fact magazine which now gone published a special issue imagine this concerning this guy he was the arizona senator and the republican presidential candidate okay so he was up against lbj magazine sent out an informal survey conducted a week after goldwater received the nomination for president from the republican party and this involved the distribution of a questionnaire to all of the nation's 12,356 psychiatrists saying, do you believe Barry Goldwater is psychologically fit to serve as president of the United States? Wow. Right? 1,189 deemed him unfit. And then, of course, fact went, I published a magazine, it went, 1,189 psychiatrists think he's unfit. And um, he lost the presidential election. Wow. Now, he lost it for, uh, people think that he lost it for various reasons okay but a few years later um which is a bit odd but it was 1973 the uh, apa went we can't let people do this we can't uh, have psychiatrists say this so section 7.3 remains a component of the apa's principle of medical ethics and it says that in relation to public figures our information publicly conveyed it is unethical for a psychiatrist to offer a professional opinion unless he or she has conducted an examination and has been granted proper authorization for such a statement so you would have to actually sit with, a, you know, some... If you were a psychiatrist you know, public, if you're a psychiatrist, from the APA. Yeah, yeah, and sit with someone who's a public figure to determine whether or not you're allowed to say this person is or is not fit to or pass any kind of judgment on them. Yeah, you can talk about psychiatry generally and that sort of stuff, but you cannot go, see that guy over there? Yeah, yeah, dressed as a... As, as a chicken, yeah. That guy dressed as a chicken, barking like a dog with one headphone in, <laughs> signing copies of Mein Kampf upside down with a crayon he's just taken out of his own <laughs> rectum. I couldn't possibly say if he was a little bit off kilter. But hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. So is it specifically people in positions of power or is it like, as you said, the, the crazy guy in the chicken suit? Public figures would be the people who generate enough media that maybe the necessity... Or the, the the occasion to comment on somebody would happen. Gotcha, right. So if they were if they were brought onto like you know one of those American rolling news coverage things about the you know gubernatorial race in Arizona, they would not be allowed to comment on any of the candidates unless they had literally sat with them and examined. If if you were a psychiatrist from the APA, yeah, wow. and specifically to them, yeah, that is. I mean, it's probably a good thing. It does <laughs> seem a little prohibitive. But it is probably a good thing in general. Well, yeah, there is discussions about how is it st- is it outdated or is it not outdated? Mm-hmm. And actually, we link. I tell you what, we'll put in the show notes a little link to an article I read about it because some people go, "Well, actually, no, it's too prohibitive." Right. Okay. Yeah, I can. It's, it is one of those things that kind of gets you down the middle. Like you're kind of going, "That's ridiculous." You're free to say what you want, and then you're like, "Well, in fairness, if it's influencing." election results it could easily be unfounded and therefore you're 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 pushing things that maybe you shouldn't be pushing well it's funny i hadn't heard of it until donald trump became the u.s president and um it was amazing how quickly it was thrown to the fore once again dave <laughs> shall we say <laughs> didn't happen very often during barack obama's reign but definitely no, during no, donald's no. county offley's barack obama please give him his full Sorry, title of course County Offaly, brackets, owner and proprietor of an exceptional service station, close brackets. That is the thing. A lot of people outside of Ireland don't even know of the joy of the Barack Obama Plaza, which is the greatest name for anything ever. But it is literally a, a motorway services near the birthplace of Barack Obama's ancient Irish family. And it's got an amazing supermax. It's got a big American car outside, doesn't it? Like a Cadillac or something. And you walk in and there's a kind of a life-size cardboard cut out of Barack and Michelle everyone gets their photo taken I'm sure Americans going in there are like what is happening it'd be like you know it'd be like driving through like rural Iowa and pulling into the like Bertie Ahern stat oil you'd be like what is happening why is this here doesn't make any sense of all the tea she we've had 
Bertie Hearn or Charlie Hoy, he would be the one who oh, would have a, a service station that they had forgotten about yeah. in the middle of nowhere. Gareth Fitzgerald would have a library, but the two boys would definitely have petrol stations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you could only play cash at the Charlie Hoy one, wouldn't you? <laughs> cash. There'd be Charvet's shirts on sale. You know, you know the finest piece of um, political analysis I've ever heard of Donald Trump was I got Go into on. a taxi in West Belfast after he was elected. Did I right. tell you this? No. I got into a taxi in Belfast just after he was elected and the taxi driver, we were talking about it and he said, God, America is very partisan now, isn't it? You've got all the Republicans on one side and all the Democrats on the other. I couldn't live in a place <laughs> that divided. This guy's like, from Belfast. Yeah. Drop me the peace while here, Seamus, and I'll have a think about <laughs> that searing political insight. <laughs> That you've just come up with here. Beautiful. So they are my three short adjacent dictator facts. Actually, do you know that I did my driving test the very first time I did it, I was 20. And the reason I did it was because I was going to Russia for a year at the end. So I went in my, my third year in university, I went to Russia. So I was 20. It was the summer. I was like, actually, if I'm going to get a job in Russia in the following summer, I might need to drive. So I better get my full license. So I went and did my test and I failed. And all I had was my provisional license. So in Ireland, you have two licenses. You have a provisional license and a full license. Provisional license is when you haven't passed your test, full license, obviously, when you have. So I went to Russia with my provisional license and said, ah, sure, when am I ever going to drive public transport in St. Petersburg or whatever? Got a job in the summertime. And the guys I was working for, a couple of Irish lads, they decided once they realized that I didn't drink, that they could use me as a taxi service. <laughs> yes. So I would like, you know, make my plans, do whatever, go out with my friends, come home, get into bed. And then I'd have like, brr, brr, the mobile phone would ring. And I'd answer it. They'd be like, can you come down to Nevsky Prospect and pick us up? So I would hop in the big, they had a big land cruiser, huge thing. And I would get in that and I would drive down. Now, just let me paint a picture for you in 1995, 1996, this would have been in Russia. The, Police on the street, the traffic police, had black and white sticks. They're not not like truncheons, but they were just black and white sticks. And they would put them out. And if you saw it, you had to pull in. You just had to pull in. And if you didn't pull in, there was another one down the street who would actually stop you. And you'd be in serious trouble. So you're driving along, your big blacked out Land Cruiser. And to be honest with you, you didn't really get stopped very often. And, you know, it was kind of fine. But one night, the lads were absolutely steaming drunk and we had gotten in i'd gone in and collected them and i was bringing them home and the guy stuck out his black and white stick and i was like oh here's the last thing i need so when we were chatting away they rolled down the window and the smell of booze <laughs> like the absolute smell of it just came wafting it and he was looking at me going whatever so i had been told if you're ever stopped you're a foreigner act like you don't speak russian i was fluent in russian but act like you know Yano Gavaryu Paruski, like, you know, your silly I don't speak Russian phrase. And you just keep saying that because they'll just get bored if they can't communicate with you. And none of them spoke English. So I'm doing this whole dumb thing. He gets me out of the car. He puts me in the back of his Lada police car while he and his friend get into the car and they're having conversations. So the other guy's been talking to the two absolutely hammered Irish lads in the back who are businessmen, probably well known to the police or whatever. In a good way, I mean, just as in... Oh, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, sorry, yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. Hold on. They're helping the police with the inquiries there and they're you well go. known to the guardian. <laughs> so, okay, so these your friends are not major criminals no. in their blacked out SUV. Okay. <laughs> they were keeping diamonds in their teeth as a decorative thing. They were not part of the Russian mob. <laughs> no, they definitely weren't. Anyway, I'm in the back, so I can understand every word the lads are saying, right? Yeah. The lads are looking at my license and it's this green fold out piece of paper and they keep coming back to the word provisional right because they're trying to they're barely read english they're trying to read and they're like like to each other like obviously in russian going what is this like do do we know i don't know this license like i've never seen before what is it? whatever so i'm sitting there kind of going oh jesus christ like i'm gonna go to russian jail this is just not what i need to be ringing my mother about yeah. tomorrow you know what i mean so eventually <laughs> that wouldn't be my massive worry about <laughs> would be my first worry about Russian jail. <laughs> my first worry would be the massive guy with the teardrop tattoo and the, the spider web on his fingers. It would not be like, how's mammy going to take this? We are very different people. Anyway, 
I eventually they turned around to me and started asking me in broken English, "What what is provision? What is?" And I went, "Yeah, oh, this is." And it was like I obviously had the the twelve stars of the EU and I said EU on it. I said, "This is province. I can drive in every province of Europe." And I started going France, Germany, <laughs> Poland. <laughs> that listed off all the countries, and they were just like going. And obviously they just couldn't. They were just getting so bored of talking to me. They eventually just went. Uh, here and put out his hand and I just gave him 10,000 rubles and he just let me out the car and back in and we went home. How much was 10,000 rubles at that stage? Two dollars. Wow. Yeah. I mean, what I think what most people are going to take from that entire story is that uh, I passed my driving test first time and you failed it. <laughs> I think that's what most people are going to take from that. <laughs> yes. If you want to just, if, if you want to get that really in your head, maybe just uh, press 30 seconds back in the podcast, put your... Sp- <laughs> Take off the speaker, put it in your headphones. Uh, Dave failed his driving test. But in fairness, you took your driver's test when you were what age? 20. 20. So at uh, 20, I'm from outside of Dublin. So I've been driving eight, nine years at the age of 20 at that stage. You've, you've lived away from home for 10 years. <laughs> yeah, I've lived away from home. Uh, people don't understand this, that if you were an international listener to this podcast, the legal age of driving is 17 in Ireland, which means that we've all been driving... <laughs> at least five years um, basically the guardy the cops stop you and go do you like country music and you say yes and they go you're allowed to drive now major confirmation here's your provision some kids get their provision of driver's license as their confirmation gift that's how it works in Ireland right that's enough of our nonsense let's talk to an expert in part two we will talk to Richard Fitzpatrick an author a journalist and a documentary maker did General Franco rig the Eurovision Song Contest. Can't believe I'm saying the sentence out loud. Richard will tell us. In manufacturing, you need to automate intelligently to compete effectively. But not all automation solutions are created equally. AGVs and AMRs driven by Bluebotics Ant technology offer robust, accurate performance and native interoperability. Because your material handling can be smarter. Visit antdriven.com. That's antdriven.com to learn more. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Okay, welcome to part two. We are now joined by journalist, author and broadcaster Richard Fitzpatrick. Uh, Richard is based in Barcelona and he's written a brilliant book on El Clasico and made a documentary called The Year General Franco Stole the Eurovision. And we'll chat to him about the El Clasico again. But for the moment, we're talking about dictators and we're talking about Eurovision song competitions. Uh, Richard, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on, Neil. Of course, we should be saying bienvenido. 
Hey, hombre. Uh, here we go. Here we go. Chad, do you want to get a room together? Or... Hombre sabe solo un poquito en español. No mucho, no mucho. That's the only bit he speaks. Any other language he speaks loads of. I'm so delighted. I'm so happy. You're going to get a Russian guest on, aren't you, just to show off? As much as soon as possible, yeah. <laughs> so... I mean, that does give a lot away, the year General Franco stole the Eurovision. But before we get to why he might or might not have done it, we're talking about 1968 here, Richard, aren't we? So take us back to 1968. Like, how is General Franco and Spain generally viewed internationally at this stage? Yeah, they were an absolute pariah in the international community. Like, it's uh, it's difficult for us to comprehend now because, you know, Spain, the Spanish people are so like the Irish were, were both Catholic and very open and warm and that and relaxed. Like the Manana culture here would be familiar to um, or acceptable, I'm sure, to a lot of Irish people and their temperament. But back in the 60s, um, they were under this long-running fascist dictatorship by Franco, the longest-running in the 20th century, and it was brutal. Um, like he he obviously came to power during the Spanish Civil War in uh, 36 to 39, but he carried on his 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 reign of terror right up until his death in 1975. Six weeks before he died, um, he carried out an, I think it was five or six political executions. Um, so he, he just had this obsession with wiping out his um, political opponents. So like in the 60s, even people were were shocked. They were really disturbed by the the violence um, um, of his dictatorship. His his favorite method of execution was um, strangulation. Like it was such a grisly method to kill political prisoners. And sorry, Richard, was was that his main target? His main target was political opposition as opposed to like the image we have maybe with dictatorships of somebody walked down the street, said the wrong thing, got hauled in by the secret police and then was like, so were the public under any threat? It was political opponents, people who were looking to undermine um, his regime. So they would have been anarchists, uh, big tradition of left wing um, his enemy in in the Spanish Civil War was the Republicans, the left wing people. So communism, which is a a sister of anarchism, that was his great obsession, wiping out communists and then regionalism. Like I live in Barcelona, in Catalonia and Catalonia wanted to secede as it does today or half the population here does. So he he was really nervous about separatists from the Basque country and Catalonia. So in the Basque country, there was, um, you know, a terrorist organization, ETA, which sprung up. The Catalans weren't armed uh, terrorists, but they were pushing or they had aspirations for for independence, which has gone back centuries. Um, So he was he would like any kind of political activity that and it could be pretty like basic innocuous stuff, you know, like protesting or putting up posters. You would get thrown into prison for like six years. It was really harsh sentences and everybody was on edge. It was a police state. So like I've spoken to a lot of people who were alive at the time. People wouldn't get taxis because they knew all the taxi drivers were informers. The concierges in the, in the buildings were informers. You couldn't sit out in a cafe and talk politics or talk anti-Franco stuff and um, because you would be terrified about who was sitting in the table beside you. So people uh, just lived in fear. So it was a, a, an awful environment to live in. And if there was such a pariah in the inter- on the international stage, you know, it seems odd to us, I think, that, you know, something so frivolous and joyous as the modern, particularly the modern incarnation of the Eurovision Song Contest might be rigged by someone who was such a, a fundamentally serious and obviously very flawed human being. But were other countries saying that Spain shouldn't be in the Eurovision? Yeah, uh, there actually was. By 1968, there was a famous incident at the finals in 1964 in Denmark. Um, it was staged in Copenhagen. And a protester, like a streaker, he he managed to get on stage and had a placard and he was calling for General Franco to be boycotted. Um, so even in the in the uh, the rarefied <laughs> environs of the Eurovision, people were quite agitated about it. And, and when Spain won in 68, the following year in 69, Austria boycotted it, the uh, the finals in Spain. Like even in, in France, say, there would have been 
campaigns, you know, to to boycott Spanish tourism, you know, with posters saying um, tourist, there's no sunshine in the Spanish prisons. So everybody was kind of aware of what was going on in Spain. One thing I wanted to ask was, I mean, we all holiday in Spain. It's it's probably the the preferred destination for Irish people. Um, and certainly internationally, Spain is one of the most visited countries in the world. I think second only to France in Europe and France is the most visited country in the world. So would the tradition of tourism, I suppose it, it probably in the 60s and 70s wasn't quite in, in the prevalence it is today with package holidays and cheap flights and all those things. But would Spain have still been a destination for oblivious tourists who, you know, didn't care that Franco was in power or that there was this police state or oppression because they were just going on their holidays to a sunny climate? Yeah, absolutely would. And if you if you ask around, like I, because I live in Spain, it would come up in conversation more, maybe. But I know people like my next door neighbor um, at home in Ennis County, Clare, they went on their honeymoon to Sitges, just up the coast here from Barcelona. Yeah. That was in the late 60s. So the doors really opened for tourism in, in the country in the 60s. And again, the, anecdotally, I know a lot of people, young you know, guys in their 20s at the time who would have come into Spain. And it was, you know, it was easy to get into the country. And for a tourist, it wasn't, you know, they wouldn't get into trouble or, you know, it wasn't a threat to them, you know, that uh, the doors were open for these tourists. Um, it was more for the the um, citizens of Spain that gotcha. um, had the difficulty. So there's been this rumour for, for years in Spain, the Franco rigged the 1968 Eurovision Song Competition. But how did this rumour actually see the light of day then like how did it kind of get out into the mainstream yeah it didn't surface until um 2008 so what happened was in spain that year they had a tv documentary on the momentous spring of 68 all the, the upheaval that that spring you know it was the same across europe and one of the items in that program was on this theory this rumor that the 68 eurovision was rigged by franco so they got a guy on as part of the program, uh, Jose Maria Inigo. He's basically the, the Terry Wogan of Spanish TV. He used right. to present the um, the coverage of, of the Eurovision. He sadly passed away there about four years ago. Every year, right up until his death, a really charismatic figure. He, he also had a famous chat show in the 70s. He's, he had this glorious moustache, kind of like a out of on Bismarck and um, <laughs> the, he was a master like you guys would, would appreciate his skills the show you, they used to get the best of guests like Gay Byrne in the Late Late Show in the 70s you know the top Hollywood actors Bing Crosby you know Charlton Heston and he used to do the interviews and he used to be his own interpreter as well so he would ask the person the question the guest and then he would translate the answer on the fly oh neil knows how much that would be a dream for me <laughs> to, to ask the incisive question then translate it into another language get the answer back translate that back oh god this is my dream oh no with with great power comes great responsibility i don't think that we could give that sort of stuff to you <laughs> i don't think you could be trusted with that no you're it's too much power so, so on this 2008 show what did this spanish terry wogan spanish gay burn say jose mario inigo what did he yeah, say yeah he came out uh regurgitating the the rumor that franco had rigged it so the theory was at the, at the time, it should just to um, um, explain the background. At the time, the Eurovision wasn't a telephone vote in. Um, or the countries in the finals had uh, judges, a jury, right. and on each jury there was ten members, and those members were picked by the television station. So RT, for example, would have picked ten judges, and as it happens, Charlie Bird, the famous reporter, his brother was one of the judges uh, on the Irish jury. So. All the different countries had their juries. And then uh, the, the fix, as it was, uh, was that the Spanish television network, uh, Televisión Española, the, the BBC of Spain or the RT of Spain, they sent their man, this was a, a music agent, around to the different juries in Europe or a select number of them and got them to bribe, pay bribes to, um, to ensure that uh, Spain won on the night. So the bribes it took the form of, you know, promises to buy TV series, to give recording contracts uh, to artists, possibly brown envelopes. But that was that was the theory. So the suggestion is that 
So the the man turns up from Madrid and walks into wherever RTE, for example, and goes, "I like your series, Glen Rowe. How would you like if we played it all across Spain? Glen Rojo. Glen Rojo. And we like that band, Aslan. And we will play them on our international radio stations. And basically in exchange for votes and a nod and a wink. So that's the suggestion. That's the rumor. That's the rumor. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And now, now 68, of course, is possibly the most famous song in the history of the Eurovision that didn't win. So La La La, the Spanish song. Beats what song, David? Okay, and and here, here's the test, right? Here's the test, right? I don't know what. So say to me, like you know, sing la la la. I have no idea. So tell me the name of the song that was beaten, and see if I can sing that. Oh, of course you're gonna know it. Uh, congratulations. Congratulations. Cliff Richard, yeah, a 27-year-old Cliff Richard who's just had done his summer holiday. He's a massive powers. Yeah, powers. It gets better than that. Richard, tell him who wrote the song. Our very own Phil Coulter from County Derry, from Derry itself. He had just won it with Sandy Shaw, Puppet on a String. So this thing. Sorry, Phil Coulter wrote both of those songs. Both of those songs. So Phil Coulter is vying to do it two years in a row. So they're they're strong favourites, Richard. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, they're totally out and out favourite. England, yeah, like you said, Sandy Shaw had won it the previous year. They're the holders. It's on in the Royal Albert Hall in London. They're the the home team. You've got Cliff Richard. I mean, he's like ginormous at this. This is Harry like. Styles of nineteen sixty eight, basically. <laughs> Harry Harry Webb. <laughs> Uh, they have this incredible song. Congratulations. Like it wasn't the, the best song n- never to have uh, won the Eurovision Song Contest. It was the, the best song. Like it sold 250 million copies or something. Like it completely surpasses, say, Waterloo or anything. So you're in the, the Albert Hall, right? Let's say the fix is in for the moment, right? How does the voting unfold then? Like do, do, this, do the Spaniards just romp to an early lead? No, it was very dramatic. Like, I mean, f- for me as a kid, the Eurovision was great. The drama of the voting, like uh, I was growing up in the early 80s. So it was fascinating to, to watch. And I uh, gorged on this particular Eurovision doing the research for it. But the voting was really uh, interesting. So France went ahead. France had won it, I think, three times at this stage. So they were a strong entry. They were ahead at half time, or um, by the time half of the votes had come in. And then England surged ahead and there was four countries in the running towards the last few rounds, England leading all the way. And well, the UK, was, I suppose. Rather or the UK, sorry, forgive yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. Royal, un- what is it? Royal Le Royaume-Uni. Royaume <laughs> <laughs> peux le faire en français aussi, hein? So they were ahead by... Uh, Spanish uh, for fuck off, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> I guarantee you Richard knows that one. I think he probably does. So France were tailing England and Spain and also Ireland were in the mix. Ireland uh, was Barry McGuigan's father was, was the contestant. Harry McGuigan's dad. Yeah, yeah, famous. Do you do you remember him singing at, at Loftus Road in the 85, 85 when Barry McGuigan won his world title? He, uh, his father sung Danny Boy. Yes, I knew he was a singer, all right. Yeah, Pat. Oh, yeah, he was. He he won out of like, I think, 600 entries. Uh, oh, my Get God. the Irish nod. So the UK are doing reasonably well towards the end. With congratulations, then. They were doing so well that the ushers from the BBC came along to Phil Coulter and they said, Phil, get up side stage. Uh, you're about to be uh, pronounced a winner. Um, so oh, did he, he, w- he was cagey. Yeah, he was nervous. And he, he was the co-writer. His b- songwriting partner, Bill Martin, a Scottish guy, uh, was adamant. He was there. I'm not going up. I'm not tempting fate. But uh, Phil Coulter went up anyway and he was waiting in the wings. And then, so three rounds of voting to go. Spain comes in to vote. And we know how these things work. You know, it was no surprise that Spain didn't give any votes to the UK or Ireland or France. Mm. But still, England, big, 
big lead ahead. Uh, they were f- still five points ahead of Spain with two rounds to go. Germany comes in then and gives the UK no votes and Spain six. So Spain oh. pulls ahead by a point. None of the 10 German yeah. judges mm. said, my favorite song is Congratulations. And six of them said it's la, 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 But 22 years after the World Cup final, 23 years yeah. after World War. Yeah, Second yeah World maybe. War. And Germany and Spain, they were close allies on, you know, in television terms as well. The following year when Spain hosted the tournament, the German network loaned them coloured cameras, cameras so they could oh, uh, film yeah. it in, in colour. But yeah, that's that was the decisive vote, the Germany one. So when they win, right, and and um, our Spanish Terry Wogan, as I'm going to call him for the rest of the show, is he the only person who suggested that this was the fix was in? No, there's um. So in the research I did for the the radio documentary I did on it, I unearthed two record executives. So, um, the Spain entry. There's a backstory to the Spain entry. It was sung by this twenty year old singer Masayel. But she was only drafted in at the last minute because the original singer for the song was a, a famous guy in Spanish culture guy called uh, Juan Manuel Serrat. He's the kind of like Leonard Cohen of, oh, of yeah. um, the him. Hispanic uh, music world. Yeah, mm. Pep Guardiola would be a big fan of his, the Man City coach. And he is a Catalan from Barcelona, from the city here. And he was selected to go forward with, with La La La, but he's Catalan and he, he was singing the song in Catalan and he wanted to sing it in Catalan. So Catalan, the language, it's more than a dialect. It's closer to French than it is to Spanish. And during the Franco regime, the language was banned. During the Spanish Civil War, there was people killed for speaking Catalan. And uh, after the Civil War, then it was you weren't allowed to speak it in public. So he wanted to sing the song in Catalan. Uh, Franco regime said no way. So he was dropped as the singer. And it was a very brave thing for him to do. Even making the stand, he risked getting um, imprisoned. And he was subsequently exiled in the 70s. Though the record company he worked for, I interviewed the two guys who owned that record company. And they confirmed the the rumor that the, the fix was in. They said that Surratt's manager, a guy, Lasso de la Vega, he went around to the TV stations in Europe on a promotional drive with Surratt in the run-up to the finals. And he was working under uh, the aegis of the Televisión Español, the Spanish TV station. And that was when he um, the votes were bought. Uh, he, was, he was the bag man, essentially. I mean, we don't know the integrity of the Eurovision Song Contest throughout the the ages. But you have this, uh, like, I just can't believe that this was so important to Franco. You know, a man, as Neil described, you know, so serious, so invested in his own internal politics uh, that all of a sudden, you know, the glory of winning the Eurovision. I mean, it's, you kind of have images of Jesse Owens in, in Berlin, you know, the Olympics, whatever. And all of a sudden this upstart, you know, Cliff Richard was going to do the same to Franco in his back garden. And, you know, it, just, it just seems like such a bizarre thing to, to try to win and have the glory of. Yeah, to, it is. It is. But um, they, like, I do understand the logic why he would uh, want to do it. It's like you say, it's like sports washing the Berlin Olympics. You see it all the time. Um, try to whitewash a bad reputation. Um, it would show Spain in a good light. It was trying to push itself forward as a modern country that was open to tourism. And what better way than this huge stage, like 200 million people uh, tuned in to watch the finals, mm. uh, the Royal Albert Hall, like a massive TV audience. And this is your vision. I mean, we we joke about it nowadays. You know, it's become a bit of a skit and a parody. But back in the 60s, it was massive. Like, you know, David Bowie and Dean Martin covered songs from the Eurovision. Like, you know, Cliff Richard was was there on the night representing the UK. Um, so it stood to reason or there was a lot in it for Spain, for Franco, um, if they did uh, get to win. Did Cliff Richard or Phil Coulter think that maybe it might have been uh, fixed? Yeah, that's a great question. If uh, interviewed Phil Coulter, he he says it's it's very possible. You know, he could see how how the voting how uh, how the bribes could be done uh, the, because it wasn't a TV vote. Um, it was just these juries. 
from TV stations. Very easy to buy these guys off. He was saying it's unlikely that this guy Lasso de la Vega was driving around with crates of Rioja in the back of his, of his van. <laughs> but, but he could have been, could have been, you know, whatever it was. Just, uh, he has a scale there and he just has some Manchego and he's going, will this do it? What about will this do? It's just randomly put delicacies. Let me add the, the chorizo. Now, now, what do you think? Back up the paella truck. Beep, beep, beep. These people in Ireland, they drive a hard bargain. Just eventually, some guy turns up with a stuffed donkey from you get in the airport. Okay. You are sold. <laughs> the Director General of RTE. I've never had such well, a tough negotiation. I'm just glad that the negotiations were this format in terms of like, you know, a positive kind of bribe as opposed to, you know, if you don't vote for us, we'll land you in some kind of, you know, central Spanish prison. You'll never be heard from again in the middle of a desert somewhere, you know. At least yeah. it was positive. Yeah. Do people in Spain think it was rigged? Uh, I would say in Catalonia they do, yeah. Because, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, uh, I'd say you get a mixed mixed bag. I think a lot of people, Spanish people, would more more so than Irish people, they were, they're were completely paranoid here about bribery, about corruption. They've mm. just got such bad experience of it. The, the, their attitude is kind of... Ah, shrug of the shoulders sure that's the way the world works you know yeah. so they're very a lot more cynical or skeptical about how, how things work um, uh, in the world i know when i interviewed inigo he was very defensive about it and he was saying he was putting it back on me he was there saying well isn't it a surprise that ireland a little small island has won it seven times you know maybe you should be asking questions yourself about your own all country. right so it wasn't manchego and paella it was a uh, guinness and potato crisps that's <laughs> Who wants a briquette? <laughs> Do you believe it was rigged? I have an open mind on it from all the research I did on it. And my background is in football, in soccer. And soccer is so dirty. Like there's, you know, the bribery all, throughout the history of the European Cup, the Champions League. Even today, the president of La Liga says that there are games in La Liga fixed. Could you give us a list of those ahead of the schedule? That would be <laughs> I lost a few Bob to Dave at a match a few, few weeks ago. Talk about, I'm still waiting, but, Neil. So there's a lot of circumstantial evidence. There's a, there's also very firm evidence from a guy, um, Alfonso Osea, a famous columnist with uh, La Razón, uh, a right-wing newspaper here in Spain. He said he had dinner with the guy at the centre of this uh, whole scandal, the head of Televisión Española. He had a dinner with him in 1980, and Razón was this guy. And he said Razón said the thing was rigged. We we went around there. We bought the the votes with bribes. It was all done in meeting rooms. He, he subsequently said this guy Alfonso Isaiah that the Minister of Information and Tourism, who was the boss of the uh, the chairman of Televisión Española, he said that Franco told him in '68, "Is this is the year we have to win this song contest? If it doesn't happen, you and Rossan are out on the street." Oh, so wow. that's that's the testimony of Isaiah. It's hard to know. Like all the principal actors are are in the grave. Um, Rossan the television television española guy lasso de la vega the the manager of serrat the singer who apparently was the bag man and of course franco himself they're all all in the graves so. it would be quite funny if they did it and then just ashamedly the year after they won it put on all the stuff they'd bought so like in 1969 <laughs> it was just wall-to-wall french like bizarre cooking programs, <laughs> uh, like TG Car, uh, like Ross Naroon was his debut. Finish on elk Spanish hunting. Finish. Very helpful. Very helpful for the Spanish people. And an entire channel of Finnish elk hunting. <laughs> Welcome to the Helsinki Games. Um, we're going for a twelve pointer today, and, and, and Franco just went, "Yeah, what? What? What are you, what are you what? saying? What? You going to say something? Because you know what happened to the last person." <laughs> <laughs> oh man, this is just just kind of rocks my world a little bit because you know I I believe in the purity of things like the Eurovision and now to hear that there may or may not have been Manchego envelopes passed it just makes me a bit sad. I'll be honest. Manchego envelopes sounds like something you find in a lovely restaurant. Do you know what? It's a great it's a great name for an album. 
It Manchego is... envelopes by the Spanish Terry Wogan. <laughs> <laughs> I would 100% buy that. Everybody would. Featuring hits such as La 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 La. <laughs> All royalties to Franco. How popular was La 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 then? Is it one of those things that because we are a bit possibly snobbish in the Anglophone world and not exposed to Latin music in the way half of the world is, it kind of passes us by and you're going to go, yeah, but it actually sold a billion copies in uh, South America and Spain. Yeah, it's, I was completely dismissive of the song and, and like, I mean, a guy who would know more about music, Phil Coulter is, is totally, is there, like the lyrics, la la la, they're not going to win a, a, an Emmy for that. And he, he actually claimed that the song is a ripoff of uh, the Beatles song. Um, We're of, going to rig the Eurovision. <laughs> that one. No, uh, the Joe Cocker one that he covered, what was that? A Little Help From My Friends. He said the melody is the same. Like the song was composed by the, the arrangement was done by the same, a German guy who did um, uh, Strangers in the Night by Frank Sinatra. So it was, you know, serious uh, people involved. But yeah, I was dismissive of the song and I was kind of turned by the, the TV or the radio presenter of the Eurovision here in, in Spain. He said, look, it's a snappy kind of pop song. They, they did. It was a kind of masterstroke in a way, the la la la, because it would play to any audience. And the proof, I suppose, is in the pudding. It, it has survived. Like it, it's it's made the duo Dynamica, the songwriters, about a million euro in, in royalties over the years. And wow. yeah, it still survives to this day. You're right, Neil, about, about Latin music. I mean, if I asked you who the biggest streaming artist on Spotify of 2020 and 2021, I'm 99% sure who that artist is. Um, is it um, um, uh, Pitbull? No. Is is it Despacito? That one. Mm, it's re- well, Daddy Yankee is related to it. It's actually a Puerto Rican artist called Bad Bunny. Bad Bunny is the most streamed artist on Spotify for the last two years. Wow! And like as you just said, most people don't know who Bad Bunny is. They might know him because he featured on a Drake song or a Cardi B song, whatever. Yeah, but like, this side of the world, you mean? Exactly. Literally the most streamed artist on earth is Bad Bunny. But Richard, I must say you have convinced me that Franco rigged the Eurovision. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad Richard convinced you because I don't have to break out my folder, which is entitled How Hitler Fixed the National Plowing Championships, which is <laughs> which was the next one on the list. But we have no. some absolute crackers. We've got Mussolini in the community games. Oh, my God. Oh, that's a big Mosley that year. <laughs> Stalin and Fela 92, was it? Stalin and Fela <laughs> as well. And, oh, my God. What's that? What's that? Salazar and the Rose of Chile. <laughs> the Pinochet and the Rose of Chile. Sorry, I always get those Of up. course, of course. Uh, Richard, muchísimas gracias. That is amazing. What a story. Thank you so much for sharing it. Thanks, civilian. Muchas gracias. Yeah, gracias a ti. Un abrazo. Welcome back to part three of Why Would You Tell Me That? Well, Dave, it looks like General Franco, in an unexpected side to him, may have rigged the Eurovision. May have. I mean, I suppose ultimately, you know, congratulations is a bigger, better known, more successful song. I know La 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 had its success in South America, whatever. But I suppose, you know, yeah, I mean, it's not surprising. I, I think... I it wouldn't can, be beyond him. It wouldn't be beyond him is what you'd say about the fella. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if he admitted it in the pub. Yes. And Spani- Spanish Terry Wogan, as Richard described him as, he was convinced of it. Various other people were, were convinced of it. Richard is convinced of it. That is enough for me, given that we are bound <laughs> to. Yes. Yes. Trivia and fact on this. But the odd conspiracy theory. A little bit. Of, a little bit of theory. A little bit of opinion never hurt any man. Yeah, Except yeah. a few men who probably did hurt. Um, but yeah, look, another fascinating episode and a lovely insight into a competition. We we love the, 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 the pomp and the campness and the performances of the Eurovision, but you don't really think of it as a political tool very often. So it's fascinating to look at it in that sense as well. Yeah, we actually, there's a few weird stories connected to it. So I think we might we might do a special. 
We might do a Eurovision, oh, a Eurovision special, special because there's a few people who have told me a few different things where it has been uh, influenced or, okay. or they tried to use it to influence things and maybe we're not familiar with. So that Amazing. keep an eye out for that in, in future seasons because this is the end of season four. The end of season four. We've come to yet the, the end of yet another season. And I have to say, Neil, uh, my interest is not waning. Uh, like there's, not, there's nothing about this that I don't enjoy. I sit, I stare into your beautiful eyes and we talk facts and learn each other. It's brilliant. Well, season, you've got me saying season as well, which... Right, which you, you want to say series. I started saying series and you clearly, your your Americanized influence has made me say season and um, I'm okay with that. What really upsets me, I haven't told you this, but when you say airplane, I mean, that really upsets me. Well, what do you like want me a, to say? Aeroplane. On like on a, on like on a cellular level. <laughs> what? Cellular. Airplane. When you it's say lit- airplane, it just, there's a little part of culture. <laughs> I just <laughs> yes. want to oh my oh, god oh I am going to do an entire episode on airplane versus aeroplane and figure out how many times I can annoy Neil the movies one and two were not called aeroplane one and two they're <laughs> no, airplane on. one you're and two pu- I don't know you're putting about five different A's in <laughs> plane now I say I say aeroplane I don't say aeroplane aeroplane like, it is aeroplane just- uh, well, I don't know about you, but there's these two young lads from down the road, the Wright brothers, and they really are just the, the stuff they come up with now. <laughs> They've built this sort of contraption that appears to be able to fly. Um, so... Listen, I think there, if, if that's all I do that annoys you, I am doing well. I am doing very well <laughs> because God knows my missus could list off an entire episode, an hour's worth of oh. why we've that episode of things that annoy her. I'm not even, and I'm not even criticizing you for saying it. It's one of those bizarre things that I don't know why. And it's airplane mode on the phone. I do. Yeah. I don't say put on airplane mode. <laughs> <laughs> airplane mode is wearing one of those leather hats like Biggles and putting on goggles and having a fella spin in a propeller gun. Contact. Uh, so it is. I'm not saying it's logical, but it's just one right. Of those it's things. just one of but those anyway, things. I get I'll it. I'll explain I get the it, rest of them in the next season. Yeah. Um, well, that's okay. Sa- save the rest for another time. Let's let's round off series four as friends. Uh, see I said series there for you see I'm being nice ah you're such a legend uh, let's round it off as friends this has been amazing we have educated each other and hopefully the uh, people who listen as well thank you to everybody who tunes in we know you do in your thousands and honestly I don't know about you Neil but like, it's still one of the things I'm most proud of is when we look at the amount of people who've listened to this podcast and go wow like we started at zero which I know you started everything at zero but we did not that long ago started at zero and here we are just over a year later four seasons in and we are absolutely flying loving it so thank you everybody yeah I absolutely love it as well um, and that's the end of me being sincere um, if you want to listen to Dave <laughs> miss him from the podcast because we are going to be off now until October you can check out his brand new show on uh, Today FM yeah, actually let's see let's see let's see how much how much you you know me what's the show how's the branding going for my this branding exercise what is the name of my new program on Today FM Dave Moore, the Dave Moore Show on Today FM. Well, I mean, they're, they're two different things. Dave Moore and the Dave Moore Show are two different. Like, what, what, what's what's the official title? The Dave Moore Show on Today FM. <sighs> now I've got another thing to add to my list of things that annoy me about Neil Delamere. No, it's just Dave Moore on Today FM. That's all it is. Yeah, but it's not just you sitting there. I mean, you have to talk. It doesn't like, matter. You have to have some it's, degree of a show. It's not called the Dave Moore Show. It's just called Dave Moore on Today FM. Okay. Well, I mean, I've never heard your radio show. <laughs> Like in the twenty-one yeah. years you've no, been on various different the only stations, time, the only time you've heard it is when you've been on it, literally I, live. No, no, I do listen to the first, the ten minutes before I've been on it in case I can talk when, about when you're that, when you're at reception. Yeah, I get it. I get reception. It. Yeah, when, when it's forcibly, <laughs> <laughs> when it's forcibly beamed into my ears. Yes, and, I do then listen to it. And given that the reception that Neil is talking about is the reception for at least six radio stations, <laughs> a podcast network, it could be it could be any station that's on. And he's like. She's Dave sounds like a girl today. That's great. I've never listened to any of these things. Yeah, but in fairness, it's on very early in the morning. For for a man like Neil Delamere, who has lived a comedian's life for more than two decades, Nine to 12. the time that I get up at and the time that I do my show is so okay. alien to you. Here, it's hilarious. Here's my question to you, right? So I do, I have listened to your radio show, obviously. <laughs> When's the last time you saw, you came to a gig of mine? I've never been to one of your gigs. Yeah. Yeah. In your face. <laughs> so if you want to be a decent human no, being. No, actually, sorry. Sorry. Go on. You have done a gig for my radio station. <laughs> I was there. 
I you were forcibly thrust upon my ears. When was that? Ah, some gig back in the day. There was some charity comedy. Thing. Oh, okay. You know, there was a load. There was a load of comics in New York. I think the reason there. people listen to this show is the true bonds of friendship <laughs> that we have demonstrated <laughs> over the course of season four. I don't know. He works in the radio. I don't know. He's some sort of joke monkey. Who knows? We've been put together by the algorithm. Look, all I'm saying is, I'm glad we did get put together by whatever algorithm did put us together because it's some crack, and this podcast is a dream to do. So I absolutely okay, love. Let it. me do it the, the plug properly. Then. Okay, go plug, plug, plug. Listen to Dave Moore on Today FM between 9 and 12 weekdays. It's a great show. I've heard Amazing. it many times and Amazing. I really love it. <laughs> I have also been to see Neil Delamere countless times. Yes. Uh, you literally coming, can't, you literally can't count them. <laughs> Vicker Street. Yeah. Vicker Se- Street is going to be amazing. 30. Thir- 30th. 30th, <laughs> I said. You think airplanes, bad? You can't even say the number 30th. <laughs> 30th. So you've been to say like the last day of September. Yes, that's uh, what I should say. Yeah. Uh, no, no, honestly, Neil Delamar, as you know, if you listen to the podcast, is an, an hilarious man. So go and check out his hilarious comedy shows. Uh, NeilDelamar.com forward slash gigs is where you'll find out all the information you need to know about where he is gigging. And yes, definitely go to Vicker Street. That is one of the best venues for comedy that even Neil Delamar will be funny if you go there. <laughs> 100 to 102 Today FM. That's it. No one ever says that anymore. So we're not even like we're available on all platforms. Listen on the app. Get the Today FM app. If you've missed any of Dave Moore's ramblings today, you can you can go to your closest wax cylinder shop. <laughs> Listen, I think you should stand in the park where you used to do on the little box and uh, do your do your jokes as passersby go to their lunch and read their newspapers. <laughs> I've done too many gigs for that to be funny, man. <laughs> that is way too close okay, to the bone. This is the end of season series serial four. We're so grateful for listening. Uh, keep an eye on our socials throughout the time. We're not giving you podcasts. We're at Why Would You Tell Me That on Instagram. He is at Neil Delamere Comedy. I'm at Dave Today FM. And uh, yeah, we'll talk to you in October. Peace. Bye. <laughs>